How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study in 1 Thessalonians, let's take a few moments to make sure that we are spiritually prepared. Scripture says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. The solution to sin in the life of the believer is to confess sin, 1 John 1, 9. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit, ready to walk with Him, and that means to confess any known sins to God in silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come before your throne of grace today, that we can, as we prepare to study the word, know that God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer, also fills us with his knowledge. His active, sanctifying work occurs when we're in right relationship with you. And, Father, we know that as we walk by the Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, is working in us, encouraging us, strengthening us, reminding us of of what we have learned in terms of your word and using that to produce spiritual growth. Father, we also continue to pray for our nation. We pray that you would raise up uh, spiritually mature men who can lead, guide, and direct us, those who understand the establishment principles derived from the scriptures, principles of wisdom, who can be focused on what is best for the nation and not what is best for their political career. Father, we pray now as we continue our study in First Thessalonians that you help us to understand the things that we're studying and that we may have a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches about what we can expect next in terms of your prophetic timetable. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, in our last lesson, as we're going through 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we came to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 10, which foreshadows the uh, eschatological or prophetic material that Paul will remind the Thessalonian believers about when he comes to chapters 4 and 5. This is the, the build-up to uh, one of the most significant passages in the New Testament, and it really does teach about what is called the rapture of the church. Now, we'll get into that a little bit more as we get into our study, but as we look at First Thess 1.10, Paul says that we are, that he praises, I'll just start in verse 9, uh, where he t- tells the Thessalonians, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's our spiritual life, phase 2. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And that phrase, wrath to come, is not always, but often, when, especially when wrath is used in conjunction with uh, the, the verb to come, indicates something in the future, not, uh, not the wrath in terms of eternal judgment, but is a term often used for God's judgment in time, as we've seen in our uh, previous lesson, and that this indicates 
the the time of what is called Daniel's 70th week or the time of the tribulation, a seven-year period when God's wrath is poured out uh, upon uh, upon the earth. And that this means the implication here is that we're delivered from that as the church and we will not go through that seven-year period of time. Now, this is known theologically as the pre-tribulation rapture. That's a mouthful for a lot of people. It means that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will be taken out of the earth to be with the Lord in an instant, in the blink of an eye, when Jesus returns in the clouds for his church. This is indicated, the central passage for this is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, where Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Technically, that's a resurrection, not the rapture. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him. That's the key word. It, in the Greek, it's the, the word harpazo, and it was translated into the Vulgate with the word uh, rapio, which is where we get the English word rapture. So sometimes people will say, well, rapture is not even in the Bible. You can't find the word anywhere in the Bible, and so that this isn't a biblical doctrine. Well, that's really a, a false argument that's based on a misunderstanding of translation and language. The rapture clearly is taught. Now, the issue is when this occurs, the issue of the timing of the rapture. Does the rapture occur before the tribulation, before the seven years? Does the rapture occur in the middle of the tribulation? Or does the rapture occur a little bit closer to the end? That's a somewhat recent view by uh, developed by a guy named Marvin Rosenthal, who previously had held to a pre-trib rapture. And his view is that only the last, most severe part of the tribulation is called the wrath of God. And so we don't go through the wrath of God, but the church is removed. So it's sort of a three-quarter uh, tribulation view. There are a number of problems that I, I have with his view, not the least of which is the way he organizes the timing and the schedule of the jump, the, the um, uh, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments, and the way he artificially, artificially um, uses this term "wrath of God" for the sixth seal judgment, which I believe takes place near the first half of the first half of the first half, which would mean something like a year to a year and a half in the first part of the tribulation, that in the sixth seal judgment there's this this asteroid shower and and there the the leaders of the earth, the kings and the generals of the earth are hiding in the caves to to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. So the wrath of the Lamb is poured out from the very beginning of the seven year tribulation and that that is clearly the same as the wrath of God. So uh, he, he plays with a lot of terms and gets into a lot of technicalities that uh, are really are are manufactured in order to come to his his conclusion. But the pre-trib rapture always generates a lot of hostility 
from those who disagree with it and primarily from those who come from a non-dispensational background. You get some who come from a dispensational background like Marv Rosenthal, but for the most part these are advocates of what is known as covenant theology or amillennialism. And in covenant theology or amillennialism, they hold to a system of biblical interpretation that is not consistently literal. And by that I mean that they will look at other areas of Scripture as being literal. For example, the prophecies regarding the first coming of Christ are taken literally, that the Messiah would be born literally in Bethlehem, that he would literally be born of a virgin, uh, that he would literally be betrayed for the price of 30 pieces of silver, that the one who betrayed him would be a friend and numerous other prophecies that were fulfilled in the first advent, they will take those literally. But prophecies that haven't been fulfilled, they often take in a spiritualized or non-literal or allegorical manner. For example, uh, in amillennialism, in Revelation 20, which speaks uh, of the fact that, that Satan is bound for a thousand years and that Christ will reign for a thousand years and then Satan will be released at the end of a thousand year period. The term thousand years is used, I think, six or seven times in that passage. And their view is that those aren't literal thousand years. But yet they, they other numbers in scripture are taken literally. So, what is the basis within the text itself to not take a thousand as a literal one thousand year period? And there's no basis for that. So they spiritualize that to just mean an extremely long period of time or an idealized period of time, something of that nature. And that's a non-literal interpretation. Well, the question is, if you're going to interpret fulfilled prophecy literally, then what gives you the justification to interpret unfulfilled prophecy in an allegorical and non-literal fashion. Well, they really don't have an adequate answer for that. In fact, there have been a number of Amils who have recognized that if they consistently uh, interpreted the the Bible in a, in a literal fashion, then they would end up being pre-mill, a very famous critic of dispensationalism and an advocate of covenant theology as well as one of the founders of Westminster Theological Seminary was a theologian by the name of Oswald T. Alice. And that he, he is quoted as making that exact statement that if you were to take these things literally, then you would end up being uh, pre-millennial. So... Understanding or believing in the in the rapture is a subset of those who interpret the Bible literally and understand a premillennial rapture. If you do not have a belief in premillennialism, then you're not going to be thinking at all in terms of what's going to happen to the church, because in amillennialism, the church is equivalent to the kingdom. We're living in the church age, but that's the spiritual form of the kingdom. And when you're living in the spiritual form of the kingdom, Jesus is already on David's throne in heaven. He's just on a spiritualized form of David's throne. And so for the amillennialists, the next thing that's going to happen in God's prophetic timetable is Jesus is going to come back to the earth and there will be the judgment and then uh, that you will go into eternity. That's, that's their, their viewpoint. 
from their perspective, therefore, then those who are dispensationalists are making a, a lot of issues out of things that are just misinterpreted because they're not literal. And then they go back and they say, well, they make all kinds of egregious claims that have uh, been disproven by recent scholarship. One of their claims is that the whole doctrine of the pre-trib rapture was invented by uh, John Nelson Darby. And actually, some of them will go so far as to say that, that John Nelson Darby was going to some um, uh, some meetings in England and that he heard a young woman by the name of Margaret MacDonald give a prophetic utterance. Uh, in, in a quasi, this was long before the charismatic movement, but they were into various forms uh, of mysticism. And so... Um, that's where that's where Darby came up with the idea of a pre-trib rapture. The reality is that if you analyze Margaret McDonald's statement, which has been recorded for posterity, uh, it doesn't indicate anything other than a possibility of a post-trib uh, rapture because she clearly has the church going through the going through the rapture. And over the last thirty years, there have been numerous articles that have been written analyzing these historical events. Uh, Dr. Tommy Ice has written a number of them. He did all the, a lot of research and investigation on um, on, on Mar- the Margaret McDonald statement back in the early or late '80s and early '90s. And sadly, what happens is people who make these claims just keep making them. It's a, you know it's it's as if dispensationalists can talk and talk and talk and promote evidence and evidence after evidence. And the, na- the, the those who disagree with them, those who criticize dispensationalists and the pre-trib rapture, just ignore their scholarship. They never interact with it, which raises a question as to whether they just have an agenda to promote or whether they're really serious about discovering what the Bible says. And there's a new film that's coming out. In fact, by the time you watch this, it may be out. They've been saying that they were going to release this film ever since last January, and they've had four or five release dates. And the most recent uh, email indicates a release date somewhere uh, by the end of August, and it's it's called uh, Left Behind or Led Astray. And I even hesitate mentioning that because that sort of legitimizes it. But there have been several things, if you watch the trailer, there are several things that come out that they that – are typical of anti-dispensational, anti-pre-trib rapture arguments that indicate that, once again, you have people who have uh, enough knowledge to put together a sophisticated critique, but unfortunately they haven't done the research and they've ignored a lot of basic things that have been said. One of the things they'll come out with and says, well, there's no pre-trib rapture in the early church, therefore it's not in the Bible. Well, anyone who spends any time studying what's referred to as the uh, apostolic fathers. Now, the apostles, that's the apostolic age. That's that's when Paul and John, Luke, or Matthew are still alive and writing before the canon is closed. The apostolic period is the period from roughly 33, the time of Christ's death, until the mid-90s when the apostle John, John, the last apostle, dies and passes off the scene. Then from, it kind of overlaps a little bit because for a while John's the only one left alive. From roughly the 80s, some say 70s, uh, up to the mid 
the mid-100s, you have the period called the Apostolic Fathers. Apostolic Fathers were those early church fathers who were, uh, who knew the apostles. In some cases, they were disciples of the apostles, men like Polycarp, who was taught and trained and discipled by the apostles John, and, and numerous others. You have uh, Clement of Rome, uh, who writes an epistle, uh, to the Corinthians him, himself. Uh, you have, uh, early writings such as the Epistle of Barnabas and the, another one called the Didache, which was sort of an early, Basic, um, uh, basic doctrine type of, uh, of document. The Didache means the teaching and it's called the teaching of the twelve. And in that early stage, you have some people who look at these writers because they haven't enough time to really be able to distinguish between that which is written that is canonic, going to be canonical, and that which is not canonical, but just has some spiritual value to it. And so they were, uh, that's their perspective. So one of the, these arguments comes along and begins to question uh, and, and throw doubts on, and basically their assumption, anything that's not there early isn't accurate. Well, the problem is you go into the early apostolic fathers, and they believe, uh, if you read what they believe about salvation, they're really confused. They believe you have to be baptized or you weren't saved. Most of them believe in baptismal regeneration. They didn't have a clear understanding of the Trinity because the Trinity isn't really thought through analytically and and defined until you get to the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. Uh, You have a lot of problems because in the early church, from about A.D. until 150, they're just re-articulating what Scripture says in a non-analytical fashion. And it's only as you get more into the second century that, uh, uh, that you get uh, issues related to persecution and opposition, and you get uh, uh, various philosophers that are anti-Christian who are writing anti-Christian uh, diatribes that you get the development of a group of men that are called the apologists or the defenders, and they begin to think more analytically about Scripture and answering these questions. For example, in the early church regarding to the Trinity, they believed Jesus was God. They believed the Holy Spirit was God. They believed the Father was God. But nobody was asking, well, why don't you have three gods? If, if those three are each God, why don't you have three gods? And they believed in monotheism, but nobody's asking the kind of or answering those kinds of questions that call for more uh, more detailed analytical thought. So you don't have this kind of analytical thought characterizing that, that particular period in the early church. But you do have clear indications in some, pa- some, some writings in the early church that they believed in a distinction between Israel, God's plan for Israel, and God's plan for the church. You've got people like Dr. Larry Crutchfield, who's done some, uh, some great work on that. You also have uh, uh, another guy by the name of Pettigrew, who's done some work on this, showing that you have certain basic themes in the early church that relate to dispensationalism. And one of the most significant of these doctrines is the doctrine known as the imminence of the rapture, the imminence of, of the second coming, that Jesus taught that I will come at any moment. 
Now, if Jesus is going to come at any moment, that means that there's no signs, there's no prophecies that have to be fulfilled prior to his coming. And so we come to understand that there are two aspects to Jesus' future coming. Phase one is a coming that is imminent, that could be at any moment, and we call that the rapture of the church. And then there is stage two, which is when Jesus comes to the earth, and that is technically the second coming proper. So there's sort of a prelude to the second coming seven years earlier that we refer to as the rapture of the church. And one of the reasons we believe this is because there's so many passages in the Scripture and in the early church where they believed clearly that Jesus could come back at any moment. They didn't have to wait for the Antichrist. They didn't have to wait for the abomination of desolation. They didn't have to wait for the 144,000 to come on the scene. They didn't have to wait for the uh, any of the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, or bold judgments. They clearly understood that what they were looking for was Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. And so what I want to do at this early stage as we are first introducing the concept of the rapture is to look at this doctrine of imminency. Now, in terms of the early church, uh, in terms of the early church, what did they believe about about the imminence of Christ's return? Well, in First Clement, this is Clement of Rome, who is the pastor of the Church of Rome, leader of the Church of Rome. Roman Catholics think he was the second or third pope. Uh, that is not valid whatsoever. But he was the leader in the Church of Rome, and he wrote an epistle uh, to the Corinthians, and he said, Of a truth, soon and suddenly shall his will be accomplished, as the Scriptures also bear witness, saying, Speedily will he come and will not tarry. He was expecting the return of Christ to be soon and immediate and sudden, and he wasn't looking for the Antichrist or anything else to come in the intervening period. So this is clearly an indication that he believed that the Lord, and goes on to say, the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple, even the Holy One from whom ye, ye look. Then you have just a, a, a couple of decades later, uh, in the around the 140s, you have... Probably 120s. You have Ignatius. Ignatius was a martyr around 120, so this is the early part of the 100s. He says, The last times are come upon us. Let us therefore be of reverent spirit and fear the long suffering of God that it tend not to our condemnation. For let us either stand in awe of the wrath to come or show regard for the grace which is at present displayed. One of two things. So he sees that the last days are, are, are near. They're, they're imminent. They're right, we're right at the, at the door. And Irenaeus, who is the Bishop of Lyon in France, uh, wrote about, against heresies quite a bit. And he says that in, and therefore he says, when in the end, the church shall be suddenly caught up from this, it is said there shall be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning, neither shall be. And Irenaeus writes roughly between 150 and 170. Now that's a fascinating statement by him, but it clearly indicates uh, that he understands uh, imminency. Now there have been other quotes that have been discovered, other statements that have been discovered uh, through the research of the pre-trib rapture study group. There's a writer, a lot of times what you had in the early church was somebody would write, and they were a nobody, 
And so in order for people to read them, they would assume a pseudonym for somebody significant, and then they would write uh, write under uh, under their name. And so this was the case of a, uh, of a Syr- Syrian bishop by the name of Ephraim. So he wrote in around the 3rd century or so, but later on there, there's somebody who c- copied his style and used his name, and he's referred to as Pseudo-Ephraim. And Pseudo-Ephraim writes in the 4th century, and now he didn't have a 7-year tribulation. He only had a 3-year tribulation. Uh, but he has the church being removed prior to that the tribulation. So that's still a pre-tribulation rapture. So there's clearly evidence of a very unsophisticated concept that the next thing that's going to happen is Jesus is going to return for the church and the church isn't going to go through the tribulation. And we find this in the first 400 years. Now, another thing that's interesting, just to put this historical stuff out there at the beginning, is a, a book just came out by a uh, historical history professor, by a history professor at the uh, Colorado Christian College, at the Colorado Christian College in in Colorado, and his name's William Watson, and he, he said, and the title of this book is Dispensationalist Before Darby. Now this guy is one of those nerdy little historians that has spent years of his life specializing in the period of the of, of English church history, British church history from the, in the 1600s and 1700s. And for for fun, he goes over to England and he prowls around all these old libraries in Oxford and Cambridge and many other of the old schools there and he reads the sermons of and many of the sermons of the Puritans were printed. And he reads through those, and what he's discovered, and he's given some of this evidence in papers he's given at the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group, what he's discovered is that there's just a huge number of Puritans in the mid-1600s who understood that the, the church would not go through the tribulation. And now this hasn't, this book has just been published. In fact, I got my copy last week. I think it came out about three months ago. But this kind of information isn't on anybody's radar. And once it gets published like this, it's amazing that the critics of dispensationalism and the pre-trib rapture ignore it. Uh, there, there used to be a guy at Dallas uh, who would go to the Dallas Seminary Library, and he would, uh, his name was Dave McPherson. And he had a book uh, that was an attack on Darby, and he was one of the ones who promoted that whole thing about the fact that Darby got the pre-trib rapture from Mar- Margaret MacDonald. And so he went around and he would put um, put these little flyers for his book inside all these books on the rapture uh, in the Dallas Seminary Library. And you, as a student, you'd go and you'd be thumbing through a book or you'd be studying it, and all of a sudden one of his little flyers would, would come out. But But even long after... Uh, I think he's gone to be with the Lord. I may be mistaken, but even long after this information on pseudo-Ephraim and several others came out, uh, he continued to promote that same thing because they've got a theological agenda, and it isn't to discover biblical truth. So here we have just three quotes. And there are numerous other quotes that can could be found 
that indicate a sense of imminency in the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers, that they believed that Jesus was on the cusp of his return. Nothing needed to take place prior to that. So this is the idea in chart form, our prophetic panorama. We have the church age where we now live. Christ is going to return in the air at the rapture, and Christians are going to be taken up to be with him. There is a gap, a transition period that occurs between the rapture and the beginning of the seven years of the tribulation. This is the time when um, uh, when the Antichrist will rise to power and then sign a peace treaty or covenant with Israel. That's what kicks off the tribulation period. At that same time, probably, uh, it's hard to put this in a chart form, probably before the tribulation actually begins, you have the judgment seat of Christ uh, that takes place. It's an evaluation judgment of all church-age believers. And then these church-age believers will return with the Lord Jesus Christ at the second advent as he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom, which is referred to as the millennium, literal thousand-year reign. Then the present heavens and earth will be destroyed, new heavens and new earth are created, and we go into eternity. Now, when we look at this um, uh, passage uh, in 2 Timothy 4, 8, Paul says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to, unto all those who love his appearing. So it's important to study what is going to happen with regard to Christ's future coming and how this is laid out in, in the Scripture because this is so significant that if you love Christ's appearance, then you're preparing yourself spiritually for that that return. You're preparing yourself for uh, the judgment seat of Christ, and you're living your life for the Lord. Now, let's start off with some definitions. Imminency means the at-any-moment return of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ can return at any time. He could return before I'm done this morning. He can return... Um, Five years from now, he could return. Ten years from now, he could return. Nothing has to happen. Now, that doesn't mean that some prophecy related to what will happen within the Daniel 70th week, for example, some people may think that the return of Jews to the land now is prophetic fulfillment, and it depends on how you define that. But that's not a precursor to the... Uh, to the rapture. That's not a sign of the rapture. That is something related to what will take place in the tribulation, and I prefer to think of that as simply stage stage setting. So the rapture, though, is not dependent or conditioned upon anything else happening. The Oxford English Dictionary defines the word imminent as something that is hanging overhead, something constantly ready to befall or overtake one, something close at hand in in its incidence. So last week, as we were all looking at the radar every day to find out what this tropical storm bill was going to do, its arrival was imminent. It was going to hit Houston and drop tons of rain on us at any moment. However, the last minute it jogged to the other side. But that's the idea. We didn't know quite when we were going to get these rains. We kept hearing they were coming, they were coming, they were coming, but they never came. Uh, 
so we we missed that, but we we thought it was imminent, and so everybody was changing their plans and staying home from work, and uh, and avoiding the freeways any place that could uh, that could flood. So what we learn about the uh, imminence of the rapture is that it is certain it will occur. Unlike the arrival of Tropical Storm Bill, it's certain it will occur. We know Jesus will return for his saints, but it's uncertain when it will occur. It's not dependent, conditioned, or contingent on any other event. Nothing has to happen. Therefore, Paul expected it in his lifetime. Clement expected it in his lifetime. Irenaeus expected it in his lifetime. Many, many others expected it in their lifetime. However, in the Middle Ages, this whole doctrine got lost. Now, why did it get lost? It got lost because as the early church, through the influence of Origen and Augustine, shifted from a literal interpretation to an allegorical interpretation, and that dominated the, the Western church and Eastern church as well from roughly 400 A.D. up until the Protestant Reformation in 1500 when you started to get a return to a literal interpretation. And so during that period, nobody's thinking in terms of a literal uh, return of Christ to establish his kingdom. Now, if you're not thinking in terms of a literal return of Christ to establish his premillennial kingdom, then you're never going to think about the rapture either. So that, that's not even going to occur because the premillennialism is a is a theologically contingent doctrine for understanding the rapture. So in terms of imminency, it's not contingent on any other event, and no prophesied event intervenes between the present time and the rapture, or necessarily intervenes between the present time and the rapture. And so the church age is the only dispensation that has historical trends and no prophetic fulfillment. The church age began with the advent of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, and it ends with the rapture of the church. And this is often referred to as a mystery because it wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. Now, the second point is that the the doctrine of imminency is important to understanding the pre-tribulation return of Jesus Christ at the rapture. And this is the definition of the rapture. It is the uh, resurrection. Oh, it's the resurrection of all dead church age believers. The resurrection of all dead church age believers and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age before the tribulation. Technically, it's that removal of the living. That's where the term rapture, those who are caught up to be with the Lord in the air, those who are alive and remain are caught up to be with the Lord in the air. So you have the resurrection of those who are dead and the rapture, the removal of all living believers from the earth before the tribulation begins. As I pointed out earlier, you have different views. You have the uh, pre-trib rapture, that the rapture will occur before the tribulation and will include all believers. So you have church age, rapture first, then tribulation, then millennium. Then you have another group who's put forth the idea of a partial rapture. Partial rapture, you have spiritual Christians who go up at the rapture before the tribulation, but if you've been a naughty Christian and you haven't gotten out, gotten in fellowship, then you're going to have to go through the tribulation. 
And it's amazing how many Christians don't understand forgiveness, and they don't understand grace, and they think that if you've been a disobedient believer that somehow you're going to be punished for your sins. So this is the partial rapture view. Then there is the mid-trib rapture view. Let me see if I can get this slide to work. No, I didn't. Mid-trib rapture view, where the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation. It occurs about the same time as the abomination of desolation. Problem with that view, the most obvious problem with that view, is that it's it has certain prophetic signs that occur ahead of time. So it's not going to happen. You're going to be looking for the Antichrist to show up on the scene before you're going to be looking for the return of Jesus. And all through the New Testament, the focus is on the return of Jesus. And then you have the post-trib rapture. And the post-trib rapture emphasizes that Jesus comes only at the end. And there's a number of problems with that. Uh, one of one uh, exegetically, but just one of the simplest arguments is if all believers are raptured at the end of the tribulation, then they'll all get resurrection bodies, and there won't be anyone uh, with a mortal body who can propagate and procreate uh, the human race into the millennial kingdom. And so the post-trib rapture really falls apart for a lot of reasons, but I'm not going to critique it while we're going through this. Uh, point number four. The purpose of the doctrine of imminency is to keep every believer in a constant state of expectancy. If you knew that that Jesus wasn't going to return in your lifetime, you might not live quite as obediently as you do thinking that he might come tomorrow. But the reality is that even if Jesus doesn't return in or near our lifetime, we're going to die. We could die tomorrow. We could die the next day. So we need to always live in this state of expectancy, looking and waiting, watching and hoping for the return of Jesus Christ so that we're ready and prepared and we won't be ashamed at his coming as the Apostle John warns in 1 John 2.28. If the Christ doesn't return until after the tribulation, after the rise of the Antichrist, after the uh, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments, then we're really looking for those things to occur first, and we may relax in our Christian life. So under point number five, believers are to look for the blessed hope. This is what we find in Titus chapter 2.13. That's what we're looking for is the blessed hope of the Savior. We are to look for the Savior according to Hebrews 9.28 and Titus 2.13. We're to watch for the Savior, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 and Luke 12, 37. And we are to wait for the Savior in 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. So we're waiting for him. We're focused on that as believers. We're not waiting for something else. We're waiting for his return. Now, the sixth point, sixth point that we have is... No prophecy between, occurs between the baptism of the Spirit and the rapture means that the rapture is imminent. It could occur at any time. No one knows what hour. Nothing is intervening. This is such a critical, uh, critical, uh, point to understand. We're not looking for something else. Now, this is a problem that you have with a lot of, a certain number of dispensationalists today, what I call the people who are caught up with newspaper exegesis. Hal Lindsey was one of the worst. 
I mean, Hal did a tremendous job and had a su- superb influence on a whole generation, probably two generations of people who have read his prophetic stuff and watched his TV show. But Hal borderlines, uh, if not steps over the line, into historicism. He's trying to identify current events as that which fulfills prophecy. In dispensationalism, uh, we don't look at current events and try to figure out, well, is this related to the Antichrist? Could the Antichrist be uh, Ronald Reagan or Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton or any of the others or Barack Obama? We are focused on the fact that the next event is going to be Jesus. We're not going to know who the Antichrist is until he signs that covenant with Israel and we'll already be in heaven. So that that's different. If you go back to the early 1900s, there were a lot of these prophetic movements that were popping up all over the United States and all over England, and they were date setters. And they were saying, Jesus is coming back this year. And some of the worst would, everybody would sell everything that they had, and they would put on their little white, white robes or white sheets so that they'd be prepared. They were already dressed for heaven. And they would go up on some mountaintop, and they would wait for Jesus. And there were so many of these kinds of radical movements that people were just tired of hearing about this. We see some of that today. We hear there was a book by a guy named Huizenut that came out back in the 1988 called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1988. Oops, it didn't happen. So he wrote another book called 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Return in 1989. And then we didn't hear anything more from him. No prophecy is necessarily fulfilled, so we're not looking for that. Uh, today we have people getting all excited and stimulated by uh, Joel Rosenberg. Joel believes in a pre-trib rapture. His theology is fairly straight as far as I know on a lot of things. But he believes that that the battles of Ezekiel 38 and 39 are going to occur before the tribulation, maybe even before the rapture, which is not an uncommon view. People we know like... Tommy Ice, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, Tim LaHaye, uh, David Cooper, a number of others hold to that position. It's one of about four or five, well, one of three most likely scenarios for understanding is the, the timing of Ezekiel 38 and 39. But in Joel Rosenberg's case, right now he's looking at what's happening on the scene. You have Iran, and they're flexing their nuclear muscles. They're getting a certain amount of support from Russia. This is the first time in a long time, if ever, that Russia has entered into any kind of a positive alliance with with uh, Iran. You look at uh, what's going on with, with uh, Libya in the past, but it doesn't really fit right now. Uh, Turkey, Turkey's got some other issues, with, especially with Iran. So uh, these are the places that are mentioned as the the uh, allies who are going to instigate this Ezekiel 38 invasion of, of, of Israel. And so he's looking at what's going on there and trying to see how this fits this prophetic timetable. This is just a waste of time, in my opinion, because uh, none of these things have to take place prior to the rapture. The rapture is a signless event, and it could happen at any moment. Seventh point is that the resurrection of the church like our dying, is completely out of our control. The timing is out of our control. Nothing we can do can speed it up. 
Nothing that we can do can slow it down. It is based on God's schedule, not our schedule. Now, one of the interesting things is that in the Jewish community, you get the, a couple of rumors that are pretty rampant that, the re, that to explain why evangelicals support Israel. Uh, one is that the only reason evangelicals support Israel is because they want to convert them all to Christianity. And that's their only motivation is conversion. So you better watch out for those evangelicals. Don't trust them. A second thing they say is the only reason that, that evangelicals want to um, support Israel is because they want to get all the Jews back in the land, and then Jesus is going to come back and kill them all. Or, or they're all going to get killed in the Battle of Armageddon. So they're really, it's a subtle form of anti-Semitism. And, and that's, that, that is a, a popular view that's out there. And so what they're saying is that Christians can speed up the process by getting all the Jews back in the land. Actually, there was a there, there was a, um, a Jewish rabbi by the name of Manasseh ben Israel, who lived in the mid 1600s at the time of Oliver Cromwell. Now, at the time of Oliver Cromwell in the 1640s in England, uh, the uh, Jews had been kicked out of England uh, since. Um, uh, for for about 400 years, Jews had not been living in England at all. They had been completely expelled from England, and Manasseh ben Israel got the idea that 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 because the, the Deuteronomy says that God's going to scatter the Jews to all the nations of the earth, that if there's a nation without a Jew, then they can't be restored to the land yet. So he went to Cromwell and he said, if you'll let Jews back into England, then that will speed up the coming of the Messiah and the return of the Jews to their national homeland. So that was kind of a twist on this, this same argument. And, and it just, it, the point is that the Bible says the timing is set. There's nothing we can do. You could get all the Jews back into Israel tomorrow and it wouldn't change the timing of the rapture one little bit. Uh, nothing affects that. That's locked away in the secret councils of God. We have no control over the time or the manner of the rapture any more than we do the time or manner of our death. Eighth point, the resurrection of the church is totally beyond our control because resurrection is the Lord's victory. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5.57 talks about the resurrection as the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not something, a timing event that we can, we can affect or impact. Under point nine, uh, while the rapture is imminent, the second coming is not. There are signs. When the apostles came to Jesus, uh, there on the Mount of Olives, they said, what will the signs of your coming be? Then Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse, and, and explanation of all the things that are going to happen, that there will be wars and rumors of wars and there will be famines and there will be plagues and all these things. That's not talking about things that are going on now. We've had famines and plagues and wars and rumors of wars since Noah got off the boat. Jesus is saying this, this is something distinctive. These are, these are plagues on steroids. This is wars on steroids. This is wars and diseases and plagues and famines that go far beyond anything ever experienced in history because this is going to be a sign of his coming. 
So these are wars and plagues that are related to the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments of the tribulation that are 10, 15, 20 times more intense and severe than anything ever experienced before in history. So the, the, the second coming is going to be preceded by all of these signs. There has to be the abomination of desolation. All of these things have to take place before the second coming, and the rapture, the next coming of Christ, is not based on any fulfilled prophecy. Uh, point number 10, we learned that the rapture could have occurred at the time of James or Paul because no prophecy had to be fulfilled before the resurrection occurs. James expected it in his lifetime. Paul expected it in his lifetime. Peter expected it in his lifetime, and yet it, it did not happen. That's the doctrine of imminency. Point number 11, the distortion of imminency of the doctrine of the imminency of the rapture results in an instability and foolish explanations or speculations about the timing of the rapture. And people just go crazy about this. And we need to live each day as if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, but we also need to live as if Jesus isn't coming back for another 200 years. And we have a lot of Christians today, who, in America especially, who think that things look so bad that Jesus has to be, that the rapture needs to be very, very soon. Well, we have a little problem with that. If you're a Christian in, in any Islamic country, or you're a Christian in, in probably 80% of the world, things always have looked bad. We've just been living in a little bubble for about three or 400 years, and just because that bubble is diminishing and is probably going to go away doesn't mean the rapture is any closer. And we have to recognize that. I think that to some degree uh, a lot of our critics are, are partially correct when they say that Christians just look at the rapture as some sort of escape clause, that they're not going to go through tough times. I think that we have to recognize, we do believe, and Paul clearly taught, that we're going to go through difficult times, tribulation, even martyrdom, and it could be uh, extreme, but the rapture isn't an escape clause from that. But it, but it is, when life gets tough, we often think, oh, I sure wish the rapture would occur tomorrow. There's not a single problem in my life that the rapture wouldn't solve in a heartbeat. Okay, what are some key passages that demonstrate the imminency of, of Scripture? Well, first of all, we have a passage in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 3 and 4. Uh, it talks about uh, knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts. And saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as it was from the beginning of creation. That there's going to be a, this indicates in my mind, there's going to be a long period of time before Jesus returns. There's nothing in between. So it indicates uh, that there's going to be, uh, that there's going to be uh, the coming of Christ. And that during that time, there's going to be those who taught the church and say, well, nothing's changed. Uh, the last days, we always have to distinguish between the last days of the church and the last days of Israel. The last days of Israel is tribulation. So this is not talking about what's going on in the tribulation, but what's going on during the church age. And the principle there on the bottom of, of verse 4, 
that all the principle all things continue just as it was from the beginning of the creation is basically uh, formalized in a principle in geology called uniformitarianism, that all the processes that we see at work on the earth today have been the same forever and ever. Nothing's ever changed. And because we can look at the decay rates today and assume that they've always decayed at that same rate, that we can then extrapolate back and determine that the earth is three or four uh, million years old. We can look at erosion and we can come up with the date of the earth because if the Mississippi River Delta is putting out so much, uh, so much silt per hour, then we can extrapolate back and come up with a different, um, a different understanding of the age of the earth. The trouble is you can look at about 20 or 30 different processes and you come up with widely varying ages of the earth because the, they don't stay the same. And uh, we, we saw this when I was recently on the Grand Canyon trip, but there have been uh, uh, collections of this done. You can look at places like Answers in Genesis, and I think I went through this in uh, the study of the of the flood back in Genesis, but there there are numerous charts that give decay rates for the age of the Earth based on different systems. So if you're looking at, uh, for for example, if you're looking at uh, dust on the Moon, uh, the Earth is very young because there's not much dust on the Earth, on the Moon. You can look at at uh, ice cores on. Uh, Antarctica and the Earth is not that old. You can look at uh, silt rates in the Mississippi Delta and uh, come up with a different age. All of these indicate different different ages. But the point of that that we also see in this passage is this idea that Jesus isn't hasn't returned yet, and that's the next thing that's going to happen on the agenda is the return of Christ, not these other other uh, other events. Then we have John 14, 1 through 3, which is really a great rapture passage. A lot of people don't think of it that way, but it really is, where Jesus tells his disciples who just said, hey, you're leaving? Where are you going? How do we get there? We don't know. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Now, a lot of us memorize this verse in the King James, and it said mansions. And that was a mistranslation because the Latin word that was used to translate this was mansionis, and unfortunately that word simply refers to a place to live, often a temporary place to live. And so this isn't mansions. We're not going to get some great palatial place. I know that busts so many bubbles. Um, you know, I know I know people who've been to great places, great vacations on this earth, and they've got pictures. They say, when I get to heaven, I, want, I go, here's what my mansion want look like, Lord. Um, but all this is, it's a temporary dwelling place, because where are we going to dwell permanently? We're going to go to heaven, and, you know, we're going to go to, to our heavenly dwelling place, the light's on, and we're going to stay there for a short time, and then we return to the earth with the Lord, and we're going to rule and reign on the earth with the Lord through the millennial kingdom. And then what happens? New heavens and new earth, and then we're going to live in the new Jerusalem and the new earth. Our dwelling place really isn't in heaven forever and ever. That's sort of a misunderstanding. It's an outgrowth of of uh, the um, uh, millennial view of uh, allegorical view. Jesus comes back, that's it, everything's destroyed, and we just go to heaven. 
So Jesus says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's not emphasizing anything that intervenes or he's just going to come again and it's going to be a surprise. Um, Revelation 22.12, Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming quickly. This means soon. Once the time comes, everything will unfold in a rapid fashion. It doesn't mean I'm going to come in the next four or five years. It has the idea of when I'm coming, all of these things that happen will domino very, very quickly. And so we have to be prepared for that coming. Uh, James 5.7 in verse verse 8, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. It's at hand. It's the next thing that's going to happen in the prophetic timetable. Uh, that's, that's James. James 5, 9 pictures Jesus as standing right at the door. It could happen at any uh, any moment. Then, of course, our passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 um, 1 Corinthians 1 7, Paul says, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they're waiting for. They're not waiting for the revelation of the Antichrist, but the revelation of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3 uh, 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. First uh, Thessalonians 4.15, This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain shall, until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who fall asleep. It's just this same thing over and over and over again that that is the next thing we're looking for. Titus uh, 2.13 says the same thing, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And so uh, Paul says, If anyone who does not love the Lord, let him be accursed, Maranatha. So the Lord is near. Other passages like Philippians 4, 5, the Lord is near. This is what we're looking for. The Didache. In the Didache, we read, Be vigilant over your life. Let your lamps not be extinguished or your loins ungirded, but be prepared for you know not the hour in which our Lord will come. Okay, now in that film, in the trailer of that film I mentioned earlier, that's one of the first things they come out with and say, see, in the Didache, they don't understand anything. But you've got a clear statement here of the of the imminency of Christ that he's going to come back at any moment. That's the next thing to happen. John Calvin said the same thing. Be prepared to expect him every day or rather every moment. Now, he was not consistent because he was, he was an uh, uh, millennialist. He also said today we must be alert to grasp the imminent return of Christ. And then talking about 1 Thessalonians 4, it says it means by this to arouse the Thessalonians to wait for it, nay more to hold all believers in suspense, that they are not, that they may not promise themselves some particular time that believers might be prepared at all times. Even the Westminster Confession recognizes the reality of imminence. Shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come. This is the doctrine of imminency. And if Jesus can occur 
Jesus' return can occur at any moment, then it has to be before all of the signs, all of the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, all the things that happen during the tribulation period. Otherwise, it won't happen at any moment, and it won't happen in an hour we know not of. Okay, next time we'll come back and we'll start looking at Philippians, I mean, at, at Thessalonians, First Thess chapter 2. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded of your faithfulness, your goodness, and the fact that, that you have told us that Jesus is returning. We can count on it. We just don't know when, and we need to be prepared for it. But the implication is, from the doctrine of imminency, that we do not need to be concerned about going through the tribulation, though we may indeed go through serious opposition, persecution, and tribulation in this life. And we know that your grace can sustain us in everything, for our hope is in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.